Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our third installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 6 and 7 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we also will be sharing details about the historical context at the time of the publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this third installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 6 The authorities were evidently of the same opinion. The inquiry was not adjourned. It was held on the appointed day to satisfy the law, and it was well attended because of its human interest, no doubt. There is no incertitude as to facts. As to the one material fact, I mean. How the Patna came by her hurt was impossible to find out, the court did not expect to find out, and in the whole audience there was not a man who cared. Yet, as I've told you, all the sailors in the port attended, and the waterside business was fully represented. Whether they knew it or not, the interest that drew them here was purely psychological, the expectation of some essential disclosure as to the strength, the power, the horror of human emotions. Naturally, nothing of the kind could be disclosed. The examination of the only man able and willing to face it was beating futilely round the well-known fact, and the play of questions upon it was as instructive as the tapping with a hammer on an iron box, were the object to find out what's inside. However, an official inquiry could not be any other thing. Its object was not the fundamental why, but the superficial how of this affair. The young chap could have told them, and, though that very thing was the thing that interested the audience, the questions put to him necessarily led him away from what to me, for instance, would have been the only truth worth knowing. You can't expect the constituted authorities to inquire into the state of a man's soul, or is it only of his liver? Their business was to come down upon the consequences, and, frankly, a casual police magistrate and two nautical assessors are not much good for anything else. I don't mean to imply these fellows were stupid. The magistrate was very patient. One of the assessors was a sailing ship skipper with a reddish beard and of a pious disposition. Briarly was the other, Big Briarly. Some of you must have heard of Big Briarly, the captain of the crack ship of the Blue Star Line. That's the man. He seemed consumedly bored by the horror thrust upon him. He had never in his life made a mistake, never had an accident, never a mishap, never a check in his steady rise, and he seemed to be one of those lucky fellows who know nothing of indecision, much less of self-mistrust. At thirty-two, he had one of the best commands going in the eastern trade, and, what's more, he thought a lot of what he had. There was nothing like it in the world, and I suppose if you had asked him point-blank, he would have confessed that, in his opinion, there was not such another commander. The choice had fallen upon the right man. The rest of mankind that did not command the sixteen-knot steel steamer also were rather poor creatures. He had saved lives at sea, had rescued ships in distress, had a gold chronometer presented to him by the underwriters, and a pair of binoculars with a suitable inscription from some foreign government in commemoration of these services. He was acutely aware of his merits and of his rewards. 
I liked him well enough, though some I know, meek, friendly men at that, couldn't stand him at any price. I haven't the slightest doubt he considered himself vastly my superior. Indeed, had you been emperor of East and West, you could not have ignored your inferiority in his presence. But I couldn't get up any real sentiment of offense. He did not despise me for anything I could help, for anything I was, don't you know? I was a negligible quantity simply because I was not the fortunate man of the earth, not Montague Brierly in command of the Asa, not the owner of an inscribed gold chronometer and of silver-mounted binoculars testifying to the excellence of my seamanship and to my indomitable pluck, not possessed of an acute sense of my merits and of my rewards, besides the love and worship of a black retriever, the most wonderful of its kind, for never was such a man loved thus by such a dog. No doubt to have all this forced upon you was exasperating enough, but when I reflected that I was associated in these fatal disadvantages with twelve hundred millions of other more or less human beings, I found I could bear my share of his good-natured and contemptuous pity for the sake of something indefinite and attractive in the man. I have never defined to myself this attraction, but there were moments when I envied him. The sting of life could do no more to his complacent soul than the scratch of a pin to the smooth face of a rock. This was enviable. As I looked at him, flanking on one side the unassuming pale-faced magistrate who presided at the inquiry, his self-satisfaction presented to me and to the world a surface as hard as granite. He committed suicide very soon after. No wonder Jim's case bored him, and while I thought was something akin to fear of the immensity of his contempt for the young man under examination, he was probably holding silent inquiry into his own case. The verdict must have been of unmitigated guilt, and he took the secret of the evidence with him in that leap into the sea. If I understand anything of men, the matter was no doubt of the gravest import, one of those trifles that awaken ideas, start into life some thought with which a man unused to such companionship finds it impossible to live. I am in a position to know that it wasn't money, and it wasn't drink, and it wasn't woman. He jumped overboard at sea barely a week after the end of the inquiry, and less than three days after leaving port on his outward passage. As though on that exact spot in the midst of waters he had suddenly perceived the gates of the other world flung open wide for his reception. Yet it was not a sudden impulse. His grey-headed mate, a first-rate sailor and a nice old chap with strangers, but in his relations with his commander, the surliest chief officer I've ever seen, would tell the story with tears in his eyes. It appears that when he came on deck in the morning, Briarly had been writing in the chart room. It was ten minutes to four, he said, and the middle watch was not relieved yet, of course. He heard my voice on the bridge speaking to the second mate and called me in. I was loath to go, and that's the truth, Captain Marlowe. I couldn't stand poor Captain Briarly. I tell you with shame. We never know what a man is made of. He had been promoted over too many heads, not counting my own, and he had a damnable trick of making you feel small, nothing but by the way he said good morning. I never addressed him, sir, but on matters of duty, and then it was as much as I could do to keep a civil tongue in my head. He flattered himself there. I often wondered how Briarly could put up with his manners for more than half a voyage. I've a wife and children, he went on, and I had been ten years in the company, always expecting the next command, more fool I. Says he just like this, come in here, Mr. Jones, with that swagger of his voice, come in here, Mr. Jones. In I went. We'll lay down her position, says he, stooping over the chart, a pair of dividers in hand, by the standing orders, the officer going off duty would have done that at the end of his watch. However, I said nothing, and looked on while he marked off the ship's position with a tiny cross, 
and wrote the date and the time. I can see him this moment writing his neat figures, 17, 8, 4 a.m. The year would be written in red ink at the top of the chart. He never used his charts more than a year. Captain Briarly didn't. I've the chart now. When he had done, he stands looking down at the mark he had made and smiling to himself, then looks up at me. 32 miles more as she goes, says he, and then we shall be clear, and you may alter the course 20 degrees to the southward. We were passing to the north of the Hector Bank that voyage. I said, all right, sir, wondering what he was fussing about, since I had to call him before altering the course anyhow. Just then, eight bells were struck. We came out on the bridge, and the second mate, before going off mentions in the usual way, 71 on the log. Captain Briarly looks at the compass and then all around. It was dark and clear, and the stars were out as plain as on a frosty night in high latitudes. Suddenly, he says with a sort of little sigh, I'm going aft, and shall set the log at zero for you myself, so that there can be no mistake. Thirty-two miles more on this course, and then you are safe. Let's see. The correction on the log is six percent additive. Say, then, thirty by the dial to run, and you may come twenty degrees to starboard at once. No use losing any distance, is there? I had never heard him talk so much at one stretch, and to no purpose, as it seemed to me. I said nothing. He went down the ladder, and the dog that was always at his heels whenever he moved, night or day, followed, sliding nose first after him. I heard his boot heels tap, tap, on the after deck, and he stopped and spoke to the dog. Go back, Rover. On the bridge, boy. Go on. Get. Then he calls out to me from the dark. Shut that dog up in the chart room, Mr. Jones, will you? This was the last time I heard his voice, Captain Marlowe. These are the last words he spoke in the hearing of any living human being, sir. At this point, the old chap's voice got quite unsteady. He was afraid the poor brute would jump after him, don't you see? He pursued with a quaver. Yes, Captain Marlowe, he set the log for me. He, would you believe it? He put a drop of oil in it, too. There was the old oil feeder where he left it nearby. The bosun's mate got the hose long aft to wash down at half-past five. By and by he knocks off and runs up on the bridge. Will you please come aft, Mr. Jones? He says. There's a funny thing. I don't like to touch it. It was Captain Briarly's gold chronometer watch, carefully hung under the rail by its chain. As soon as my eyes fell on it, something struck me, and I knew, sir. My legs got soft under me. It was as if I had seen him go over, and I could tell how far behind he was left, too. The taffrail log marked eighteen miles and three quarters, and four iron belaying pins were missing round the mainmast. Put them in his pockets to help him down, I suppose. But, Lord, what's four iron pins to a powerful man like Captain Briarly? Maybe his confidence in himself was just shook a bit at the last. That's the only sign of fluster he gave in his whole life, I should think. But I am ready to answer for him, that once over he did not try to swim a stroke, the same as he would have had pluck enough to keep up all day long on the bare chance had he fallen overboard accidentally. Yes, sir. He was second to none, if he said so himself, as I heard him once. He had written two letters in the middle watch, one to the company and the other to me. He gave me a lot of instructions as to the passage. I had been in the trade before he was out of his time, and no end of hints as to my conduct with our people in Shanghai, so that I should keep the command of the Asa. He wrote like a father would to a favorite son, Captain Marlowe, and I was five and twenty years his senior and had tasted salt water before he was fairly breached. In his letter to the owners, it was left open for me to see, he said that he had always done his duty by them, up to that moment, 
and even now he was not betraying their confidence since he was leaving the ship to as competent a seaman as could be found. Meaning me, sir, meaning me. He told them that if the last act of his life didn't take away all his credit with them, they would give weight to my faithful service and to his warm recommendation when about to fill the vacancy made by his death. And much more like this, sir. I couldn't believe my eyes. It made me feel queer all over, went the old chap in great perturbation and squashing something in the corner of his eye with the end of a thumb as broad as a spatula. You would think, sir, he had jumped overboard only to give an unlucky man a last show to get on. What with the shock of him going in this awful rash way and thinking myself a made man by that chance, I was nearly off my chump for a week. But no fear. The captain of the Pelion was shifted into the Asa, came aboard in Shanghai, a little popinjay, sir, in a grey check suit with his hair parted in the middle. Uh, I am uh, your new captain, Mr. Mr. Uh, Jones. He was drowned in scent, fairly stunk with it, Captain Marlowe. I dare say it was the look I gave him that made him stammer. He mumbled something about my natural disappointment. I had better know at once that his chief officer got the promotion to the Pelion. He had nothing to do with it, of course. Suppose the office knew best. Sorry. Says I, don't you mind old Jones, sir. Damn his soul, he's used to it. I could see directly I had shocked his delicate ear, and while we sat at our first tiffin together, he made to find fault in a nasty manner with this and that in the ship. I had never heard such a voice out of a Punch and Judy show. I set my teeth hard and glued my eyes to my plate and held my peace as long as I could, but at last I had to say something. Up he jumps tiptoeing, ruffling all his pretty plumes like a little fighting cock. You'll find you have a different person to deal with than the late Captain Briarly. I've found it, says I, very glum, but pretending to be mighty busy with my steak. You are an old ruffian, Mr. Uh, Jones, and what's more, you are known for an old ruffian in the employ, he squeaks at me. The damned bottle washers stood about listening with their mouths stretched from ear to ear. I may be a hard case, answers I but I ain't so far gone as to put up with the sight of you sitting in Captain Briarly's chair. With that, I lay down my knife and fork. You would like to sit in it yourself. That's where the shoe pinches, he sneers. I left the saloon, got my rags together, and on the quay with all the dunnage about my feet before the stevedores had turned to again. Yes, adrift, on shore, after ten years' service, and with a poor woman and four children six thousand miles off, depending on my half-pay for every mouthful they ate. Yes, sir. I chucked it rather than hear Captain Briarly abused. He left me his night glasses. Here they are. And he wished me to take care of the dog. Here he is. Hello, Rover. Poor boy. Where's the captain, Rover? The dog looked up at us with mournful yellow eyes, gave one desolate bark, and crept under the table. All this was taking place more than two years afterwards, on board that nautical ruin the Fire Queen this Jones had got charge of. Quite by a funny accident, too. For Matherson, Mad Matherson, they generally called him, the same who used to hang out in Haiphong, you know, before the occupation days. The old chap snuffled on. Aye, sir, Captain Briarly will be remembered here if there's no other place on earth. I wrote fully to his father and did not get a word in reply. Neither thank you nor go to the devil. Nothing. Perhaps they did not want to know. The sight of that watery-eyed old Jones mopping his bald head with a red cotton handkerchief, the sorrowing yelp of the dog, the squalor of that fly-brown cuddy which was the only shrine of his memory, threw a veil of inexpressibly mean pathos over Briarly's remembered figure. 
the posthumous revenge of fate for that belief in his own splendor which had almost cheated his life of its legitimate terrors almost perhaps wholly who can tell what flattering view he had induced himself to take of his own suicide why did he commit the rash act captain marlowe can you think asked jones pressing his palms together why it beats me why he slapped his low and wrinkled forehead if he had been poor and old and in debt and never a show or else mad but he wasn't the kind that goes mad not he you trust me what a mate doesn't know about a skipper isn't worth knowing young healthy well off no cares i sit here sometimes thinking thinking till my head fairly begins to buzz there was some reason you may depend on it captain jones said i it wasn't anything that would have disturbed much either of us two i said and then as if a light had been flashed into the muddle of his brain poor old jones found a last word of amazing profundity he blew his nose nodding at me dolefully ay ay neither you nor i sir had ever thought so much of ourselves of course the recollection of my last conversation with briarly is tinged with the knowledge of his end that followed so close upon it i spoke with him for the last time during the progress of the inquiry it was after the first adjournment and he came up with me in the street he was in a state of irritation which i noticed with surprise his usual behavior when he condescended to converse being perfectly cool with a trace of amused tolerance as if the existence of his interlocutor had been a rather good joke they caught me for that inquiry you see he began and for a while enlarged complainingly upon the inconveniences of daily attendance in court and goodness knows how long it will last three days i suppose i heard him out in silence in my then opinion it was a way as good as another of putting on side what's the use of it it is the stupidest set out you can imagine he pursued hotly i remarked that there was no option he interrupted me with a sort of pent-up violence i feel like a fool all the time i looked at him this was going very far for briarly when talking of briarly he stopped short and seizing the lapel of my coat gave it a slight tug why are we tormenting that young chap he asked this question chimed in so well to the tolling of a certain thought of mine that with the image of the absconding renegade in my eye i answered at once hanged if i know unless it be that he lets you i was astonished to see him fall into line so to speak with that utterance which ought to have been tolerably cryptic he said angrily why yes can't he see that wretched skipper of his had cleared out what does he expect to happen nothing can save him he's done for we walked on in silence a few steps why eat all that dirt he exclaimed with an oriental energy of expression about the only sort of energy you can find a trace of east of the fiftieth meridian i wondered greatly at the direction of his thoughts but now i strongly suspect it was strictly in character at bottom poor briarly must have been thinking of himself i pointed out to him that the skipper of the patna was known to have feathered his nest pretty well and could procure almost anywhere the means of getting away with jim it was otherwise the government was keeping him in the sailor's home for the time being and probably he hadn't a penny in his pocket to bless himself with it cost some money to run away does it not always he said with a bitter laugh and to some further remark of mine well then let him creep twenty feet underground and stay there by heavens i would i don't know why his tone provoked me and i said there is a kind of courage in facing it out as he does knowing very well that if he went away nobody would trouble to run after him courage be hanged 
growled Briarly. That sort of courage is of no use to keep a man straight, and I don't care a snap for such courage. If you were to say it was a kind of cowardice now, of softness. I tell you what, I will put up two hundred rupees if you put up another hundred and undertake to make the beggar clear out early tomorrow morning. The fellow's a gentleman if he ain't fit to be touched. He will understand. He must. This infernal publicity is too shocking. There he sits while all these confounded natives, sarangs, laskers, quartermasters, are giving evidence that's enough to burn a man to ashes with shame. This is abominable. Why, Marlowe, don't you think, don't you feel that this is abominable? Don't you now, come, as a seaman. If you went away, all this would stop at once. Briarly said these words with a most unusual animation, and made as if to reach after his pocketbook. I restrained him and declared coldly that the cowardice of these four men did not seem to me a matter of such great importance. And you call yourself a seaman, I suppose, he pronounced angrily. I said that's what I called myself, and I hoped I was too. He heard me out and made a gesture with his big arm that seemed to deprive me of my individuality, to push me away into the crowd. The worst of it, he said, is that all you fellows have no sense of dignity. You don't think enough of what you are supposed to be. We had been walking slowly meantime, and now stopped opposite the harbour office, in sight of the very spot from which the immense captain of the Patna had vanished as utterly as a tiny feather blown away in a hurricane. I smiled. Briarly went on, This is a disgrace. We've got all kinds amongst us, some anointed scoundrels in the lot. But hang it, we must preserve professional decency, or we become no better than so many tinkers going about loose. We are trusted. Do you understand? Trusted. Frankly, I don't care a snap for all the pilgrims that ever came out of Asia, but a decent man would not have behaved like this to a full cargo of old rags and bales. We aren't an organized body of men, and the only thing that holds us together is just a name for that kind of decency. Such an affair destroys one's confidence. A man may go pretty near through his whole sea life without any call to show a stiff upper lip, but when the call comes, aha, if I... He broke off, and in a changed tone... I'll give you two hundred rupees now, Marlowe, and you just talk to that chap. Confound him. I wish he had never come out here. Fact is, I rather think some of my people know his. The old man's a parson, and I remember now I met him once when staying with my cousin in Essex last year. If I am not mistaken, the old chap seemed rather to fancy his sailor son. Horrible. I can't do it myself, but you. Thus, apropos of Jim, I had a glimpse of the real Briarly a few days before he committed his reality and his sham together to the keeping of the sea. Of course I declined to meddle. The tone of this last, but you. Poor Briarly couldn't help it. That seemed to imply I was no more noticeable than an insect, caused me to look at the proposal with indignation, and on account of that provocation, or for some other reason, I became positive in my mind that the inquiry was a severe punishment to that Jim, and that his facing it, practically of his own free will, was a redeeming feature in his abominable case. I hadn't been so sure of it before. Briarly went off in a huff. At the time, his state of mind was more of a mystery to me than it is now. Next day, coming into court late, I sat by myself. Of course, I could not forget the conversation I had with Briarly, and now I had them both under my eyes. The demeanor of one suggested gloomy impudence and of the other a contemptuous boredom. Yet one attitude might have been truer than the other, and I was aware that one was not true. Briarly was not bored. He was exasperated. And if so, then Jim might not have been impudent. According to my theory, he was not. I imagined he was hopeless. Then it was that our glances met. 
They met, and the look he gave me was discouraging of any intention I might have had to speak to him. Under either hypothesis, insolence or despair, I felt I could be of no use to him. This was the second day of the proceedings. Very soon after that exchange of glances, the inquiry was adjourned again to the next day. The white men began to troop out at once. Jim had been told to stand down some time before, and he was able to leave amongst the first. I saw his broad shoulders and his head outlined in the light of the door, and while I made my way slowly out talking with someone, some stranger who had addressed me casually, I could see him from within the courtroom resting both elbows on the balustrade of the veranda and turning his back on the small stream of people trickling down the few steps. There was a murmur of voices and a shuffle of boots. The next case was that of assault and battery committed upon a moneylender, I believe, and the defendant, a venerable villager with a straight white beard, sat on a mat just outside the door with his sons, daughters, sons-in-law, and their wives, and, I should think, half the population of his village besides, squatting or standing around him. A slim, dark woman, with part of her back and one black shoulder bared, and with a thin gold ring in her nose, suddenly began to talk in a high-pitched, shrewish tone. The man with me instinctively looked up at her. We were then just through the door, passing behind Jim's burly back. Whether those villagers had brought the yellow dog with them, I don't know. Anyhow, a dog was there, weaving himself in and out amongst people's legs in that mute, stealthy way native dogs have, and my companion stumbled over him. The dog leaped away without a sound. The man, raising his voice a little, said with a slow laugh, Look at that wretched cur. And directly afterwards, we became separated by a lot of people pushing in. I stood back for a moment against the wall while the stranger managed to get down the steps and disappeared. I saw Jim spin round. He made a step forward and barred my way. We were alone. He glared at me with an air of stubborn resolution. I became aware I was being held up, so to speak, as if in a wood. The veranda was empty by then. The noise and movement in court had ceased. A great silence fell upon the building, in which, somewhere far within, an oriental voice began to whine abjectly. The dog, in the very act of trying to sneak in at the door, sat down hurriedly to hunt for fleas. "'Did you speak to me?' asked Jim, very low, and bending forward not so much towards me, but at me, if you know what I mean. I said no at once. Something in the sound of that quiet tone of his warned me to be on my defense. I watched him. It was very much like meeting in a wood, only more uncertain in its issue, since he could possibly want neither my money nor my life, nothing that I could simply give up or defend with a clear conscience. You say you didn't, he said, very somber, but I heard. Some mistake, I protested, utterly at a loss, and never taking my eyes off him. To watch his face was like watching a darkening sky before a clap of thunder, shade upon shade imperceptibly coming on, the doom growing mysteriously intense in the calm of maturing violence. As far as I know, I haven't opened my lips in your hearing, I affirmed with perfect truth. I was getting a little angry, too, at the absurdity of this encounter. It strikes me now I have never in my life been so near a beating. I mean it literally, a beating with fists. I suppose I had some hazy prescience of that eventuality being in the air. Not that he was actively threatening me. On the contrary, he was strangely passive, don't you know? But he was lowering, and though not exceptionally big, he looked generally fit to demolish a wall. The most reassuring symptom I noticed was a kind of slow and ponderous hesitation, which I took as a tribute to the evident sincerity of my manner and of my tone. We faced each other. In the court, the assault case was proceeding. I caught the words, Well, buffalo, stick, in the greatness of my fear. What did you mean by staring at me all morning? said Jim at last. 
He looked up and looked down again. Did you expect us all to sit with downcast eyes out of regard for your susceptibilities? I retorted sharply. I was not going to submit meekly to any of his nonsense. He raised his eyes again, and this time continued to look at me straight in the face. No, that's all right. He pronounced with an air of deliberating with himself upon the truth of this statement. That's all right. I'm going through with that. Only, and there he spoke a little faster. I won't let any man call me names outside this court. There is a fellow with you. You spoke to him. Oh, yes, I know. Tis all very fine. You spoke to him, but you meant me to hear. I assured him he was under some extraordinary delusion. I had no conception how it came about. You thought I would be afraid to resent this, he said, with just a faint tinge of bitterness. I was interested enough to discern the slightest shades of expression, but I was not in the least enlightened. Yet I don't know what in these words, or perhaps just the intonation of that phrase, induced me suddenly to make all possible allowances for him. I ceased to be annoyed at my unexpected predicament. It was some mistake on his part. He was blundering, and I had an intuition that the blunder was of an odious, of an unfortunate nature. I was anxious to end this scene on grounds of decency, just as one is anxious to cut short some unprovoked and abominable confidence. The funniest part was that in the midst of all these considerations of the higher order, I was conscious of a certain trepidation as to the possibility, nay, likelihood, of this encounter ending in some disreputable brawl which could not possibly be explained and would make me ridiculous. I did not hanker after a three-day's celebrity as the man who got a black eye or something of the sort from the maid of the Patna. He, in all probability, did not care what he did, or at any rate would be fully justified in his own eyes. It took no magician to see he was amazingly angry about something, for all his quiet and even torpid demeanor. I don't deny I was extremely desirous to pacify him at all costs, had I only known what to do, but I didn't know, as you may well imagine. It was a blackness without a single gleam. We confronted each other in silence. He hung fire for about fifteen seconds, then made a step nearer, and I made ready to ward off a blow, though I don't think I moved a muscle. If you were as big as two men and as strong as six, he said very softly, I would tell you what I think of you. You... Stop! I exclaimed. This checked him for a second. Before you tell me what you think of me, I went on quickly, will you kindly tell me what it is I've said or done? During the pause that ensued, he surveyed me with indignation, while I made supernatural efforts of memory, in which I was hindered by the oriental voice within the courtroom expostulating with impassioned volubility against a charge of falsehood. Then we spoke almost together. I will soon show you I am not, he said in a tone suggestive of a crisis. I declare I don't know, I protested earnestly at the same time. He tried to crush me by the scorn of his glance. Now that you see I am not afraid, you try to crawl out of it, he said. Who's a cur now, hey? Then, at last, I understood. He had been scanning my features as though looking for a place where he would plant his fist. I will allow no man, he mumbled threateningly. It was, indeed, a hideous mistake. He had given himself away utterly. I can't give you an idea how shocked I was. I suppose he saw some reflection of my feelings in my face because his expression changed just a little. Good God, I stammered. You don't think I... But I am sure I've heard he persisted, raising his voice for the first time since the beginning of this deplorable scene. Then, with a shade of disdain, he added, "'It wasn't you, then? Very well, I'll find the other.' "'Don't be a fool!' I cried in exasperation. "'It wasn't that at all!' "'I've heard,' he said again, with an unshaken and somber perseverance. There may be those who could have laughed at his pertinacity. I didn't. Oh, I didn't. 
there had never been a man so mercilessly shown up by his own natural impulse. A single word had stripped him of his discretion, of that discretion which is more necessary to the decencies of our inner being than clothing is to the decorum of our body. Don't be a fool, I repeated. But the other man said it. You don't deny that? He pronounced distinctly, and looking in my face without flinching. No, I don't deny, said I, returning his gaze. At least his eyes followed downwards the direction of my pointing finger. He appeared at first uncomprehending, then confounded, and at last amazed and scared as though a dog had been a monster and he had never seen a dog before. Nobody dreamt of insulting you, I said. He contemplated the wretched animal that moved no more than an effigy. It sat with ears pricked and its sharp muzzle pointed into the doorway and suddenly snapped at a fly like a piece of mechanism. I looked at him. The red of his fair sunburnt complexion deepened suddenly under the down of his cheeks, invaded his forehead, spread to the roots of his curly hair. His ears became intensely crimson, and even the clear blue of his eyes was darkened many shades by the rush of blood to his head. His lips pouted a little, trembling as though he had been on the point of bursting into tears. I perceived he was incapable of pronouncing a word from the excess of his humiliation. From disappointment, too, who knows? Perhaps he looked forward to that hammering he was going to give me for rehabilitation, for appeasement. Who can tell what relief he expected from this chance of a row? He was naive enough to expect anything, but he had given himself away for nothing in this case. He had been frank with himself, let alone with me, and in the hope of arriving in that way at some effective refutation, and the stars had been ironically unpropitious. He made an inarticulate noise in his throat like a man imperfectly stunned by a blow on the head. It was pitiful. I didn't catch up again with him till well outside the gate. I had even to trot a little bit at the last, but when, out of breath at his elbow, I taxed him with running away, he said, Never! and at once turned at bay. I explained I never meant to say he was running away from me. From no man, from not a single man on earth, he affirmed with a stubborn mien. I forbore to point out the one obvious exception which would hold good for the bravest of us. I thought he would find out by himself very soon. He looked at me patiently while I was thinking of something to say, but I could find nothing on the spur of the moment, and he began to walk on. I kept up, and anxious not to lose him, I said hurriedly that I couldn't think of leaving him under a false impression of my... of my... I stammered. The stupidity of the phrase appalled me while I was trying to finish it, but the power of sentences has nothing to do with their sense or the logic of their construction. My idiotic mumble seemed to please him. He cut it short by saying, with courteous placidity that argued an immense power of self-control or else a wonderful elasticity of spirits, altogether my mistake. I marveled greatly at this expression. He might have been alluding to some trifling occurrence. Hadn't he understood its deplorable meaning? You may well forgive me, he continued, and went on a little moodily. All these staring people in court seemed such fools that, that it might have been as I supposed. This opened suddenly a new view of him to my wonder. I looked at him curiously and met his unabashed and impenetrable eyes. I can't put up with this kind of thing, he said very simply, and I don't mean to. In court, it's different. I've got to stand that, and I can do it, too. I don't pretend to understand him. The views he let me have of himself were like those glimpses through the shifting rents in a thick fog, bits of vivid and vanishing detail, giving no connected idea of the general aspect of a country. They fed one's curiosity without satisfying it. They were no good for purposes of orientation. Upon the whole, he was misleading. That's how I summed him up to myself after he left me late in the evening. 
I had been staying at the Malabar house for a few days, and on my pressing invitation, he dined with me there. We'll return to this installment of Lord Jim soon, but first, we have our weekly article recommendation brought to us by Lauren Gargani, director of Nutting Memorial Library. You can click the link in the show notes to be taken straight to the article from today. So now, I introduce Lauren Gargani. She studied at Ramapo College of New Jersey, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Literature, and then at Ohio University, where she pursued a Master of Arts in English. Her focus in her graduate studies was literary history in the 19th century, and she wrote her master's essay on language and sympathy in Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? Hi, Anne. It's going really well. How are you? Good, thanks. So I understand that you have another great article for us today. I am so excited about this article. I I got really into this one and I enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to sharing some things about, uh, yeah, about Conrad and um, the publication of his works for the war effort during World War II. That sounds really interesting. So what did you learn? Okay, so the article I looked at is titled Writing Man to Fighting Man, Conrad Republished for the Armed Services During the World Wars. And this is by Mary Burgoyne, and it was published in the Conradian in 2013. Uh, And there's a lot of background on publication of Conrad um, during both wars. And interestingly, it starts off talking about Conrad's own feelings during World War One, where, you know, he can't really actively participate. He's at a point in his life where, you know, he can't go and fight. And this really bothers him. Um, you know, it weighed on him that he could not contribute in that way. Um, but Burgoyne goes on to talk a lot about how much his written work contributed to the morale of troops during both of the wars. And it's fascinating. Wow. So how did he contribute in that way? So, um, during both the Great War and World War II, Um, there was a sense that getting good literature into the hands of troops was going to be really essential to morale. Um, We've seen an example of this in our own library collection. Um, I think you were the one who came across our copy of The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Um, And that had a book plate from the Library War Service, which was um, during World War I, um, the American Library Association made an effort to get literature to soldiers. So something that happened um, between the two wars, um, during World War I, paperback books weren't an option. They literally didn't exist. And then in the 1930s, um, paperback books came into being. And then the mass production of them for World War II is actually um, possibly helped popularize them. Um, so I learned a lot from Burgoyne's article about the um, armed services editions and how just the sheer scale of how many of these books were published um, and printed. And this came about um, really quickly in the early stages when the draft was reinstated in 1940, there was a call for donated books. And what was found was that you know, as is often the case um, with donations, people were giving away things that they did not want anymore. 
and they weren't getting either the uh, quantity or the quality of books that they felt they needed to support the war effort. Um, so there was a conversation, lunchtime conversation between publishers and very quickly um, there was a committee formed and their goal was to emphasize the importance in a wartime society of books as disseminators of information and ideas and as morale builders. Um, so this rapidly evolved and the Council on Books in Wartime uh, came into being. So these were, um, this is a joint effort between publishers, booksellers and librarians and writers. And their motto, Anne, their motto was books are weapons in the war of ideas. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, I got, like I said, really into the, researching the Armed Services Editions. Um, Burgoyne describes this as an audacious undertaking. And so from September 1943 to September 1947, they produced 123 million paperback copies um, mm. of. Wow. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so this was about 1300 titles. These were given free to Army and Navy servicemen. And, you know, really, like, just these books covered the world. And um, that included soldiers and sailors who were hospitalized or who were held as prisoners of war. Mm. Now, how did they select what titles they were producing? I, it seems clear that they realized the power of good literature in the hands of people who needed support and morale improvement and all of that. But I mean, I, it sounds like if they're aware of that power, they would have been pretty careful about what titles they were producing for this. They were. Um, there's actually a really um, helpful Wikipedia page that lists all of the printings and um, the titles that they included. And, you know, again, this was um, a group effort between people who knew a lot about literature and were selecting things that were really high quality. Um, but what I love is that there is a quote that Burgoyne includes from a soldier. And he is talking about being so surprised. He says, I expected to see plenty of comic books which weren't funny, unwild Wild West stories, and pretty awful mystery novels. But when I saw that the first batch contained Conrad, Melville, Steinbeck, and good humor, my incredulousness was being shattered. Oh, wow. Um, That's so really lovely. Yeah, so the combination of like really great literature that we still recognize today, like those are names that we still know, and you know, humor that's actually funny, which was, I think, incredibly important, I'm sure. Well, and it's interesting to me, too. I know a lot of uh, sailors and merchant mariners kind of discover literature while they're at sea um, because it's a great way to pass some time and you can be in kind of the right headspace for that. And it's a really different experience than reading books for class or trying to fit it in among daily life on shore. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that uh, soldiers may have kind of had a similar uh, experience with discovering literature like this. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we're talking about a time when, you know, communication is, you know, you're writing letters and you're spending weeks or months waiting for a reply and, you know, you're cut off from the life that you knew. And, you know, there's so many reasons why, you know, entertainment options just aren't plentiful. And I think in our library collection, we have some books that were designed to be read, you know, on the troop ship. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, 
very practical manuals about you know things that they would need to know but this allows them to be immersed in you know truly great literature um and there's another quote that i love from a um from another soldier who said i want to say thanks a million for one of the best deals in the army whenever we get them they are as welcome as a letter from home they are as popular as pinup girls Ooh, well, that's yeah. quite the positive thing for them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's huge praise. Um, so Burgoyne talks a lot about why these resonated with soldiers. And I think it's really, um, you know, specifically about Conrad. She talks about um, there being a sense of a commonality of experience between the mariner and soldier. Um, and there was a quote. Um, from one of his publishing contemporaries who said, you got from your struggles at sea something of what people get in war. Mm. Um, and, and she says that uh, most of the troops preferred anything of Conrad's, perhaps because his works offered characters caught in something like the troops' own predicament. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a real sense specifically about Conrad that this is you know, this is very close to home for these men who are going through something that, you know, they sense that Conrad somehow understood. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing some of that in Lord Jim already because he's facing, um, you know, the reality of being at sea and being an officer, but also having to deal with the moral implications and the ethical dilemmas that I imagine um, soldiers would also be facing in a time of war. Sure. Um, so there's there's a lot more to read about this. I do recommend this article. Um, there are a lot of great quotations in here. Um, it's it's fascinating. Um, there's a book that I am planning to acquire for our library's collection called When Books Went to War, The Stories That Helped Us Win World War II by Molly Guptill Manning. Um, so that'll be coming to our shelves very soon. Um, but but yeah, so this you know this service saw um, something like five hundred thousand copies of works by Conrad mm. uh, as a part of their effort. And Lord Jim was in the first run of books selected, so it was actually it's listed as A twenty six. It was the twenty sixth book selected out of um, over thirteen hundred. Wow. And so about 50,000 copies of Lord Jim went out in 1943. Uh, so That's just, a really impressive number. It is, right? And, you know, I my own grandfather was hospitalized after he was uh, wounded in World War II. And I have to wonder, you know, like, was he reading some of these books? Um, was, he, you know, was he maybe reading Conrad? Uh, but, you know, a lot of people were, and they were feeling really strongly about how uh, you know, how that helped them maybe with their own experiences and how how much it's interesting to read about how much it meant to soldiers to have these books. Yeah, well, that's really phenomenal. Um, and is this article available through our online resources? It is. You can find it in JSTOR. And, you know, when you search JSTOR for articles about Conrad, you're going to find literally thousands. So that title again is Writing Man to Fighting Man. And the author is Mary Burgoyne. That's fantastic. Uh, we'll definitely have that listed and linked to in our show notes. Uh, so everyone listening can take a look, um, whether they're at our institution or a little further afield, we'll have the, the link that works for either group. Wonderful. Uh, thank Thanks, you so Anne. much, Lauren. Thank you. See you next week. See you next week. I look forward to it.
And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 7 An outward-bound mail boat had come in that afternoon, and the big dining room of the hotel was more than half full of people with a hundred pounds round-the-world tickets in their pockets. There were married couples looking domesticated and bored with each other in the midst of their travels. There were small parties and large parties, and lone individuals dining solemnly or feasting boisterously, but all thinking, conversing, joking, or scowling, as was their wont at home, and just as intelligently receptive of new impressions as their trunks upstairs. Henceforth they would be labeled as having passed through this and that place, and so would be their luggage. They would cherish this distinction of their persons, and preserve the gummed tickets on their portmanteaus as documentary evidence, as the only permanent trace of their improving enterprise. The dark-faced servants tripped without noise over the vast and polished floor. Now and then a girl's laugh would be heard, as innocent and empty as her mind, or, in a sudden hush of crockery, a few words in an affected drawl from some wit embroidering for the benefit of a grinning tableful the last funny story of a shipboard scandal. Two nomadic old maids, dressed up to kill, worked acrimoniously through the bill of fare, whispering to each other with faded lips, wooden-faced and bizarre, like two sumptuous scarecrows. A little wine opened Jim's heart and loosened his tongue. His appetite was good, too, I noticed. He seemed to have buried somewhere the opening episode of our acquaintance. It was like a thing of which there would be no more question in this world. And all the time I had before me these blue, boyish eyes looking straight into mine, this young face, these capable shoulders, the open bronzed forehead with a white line under the roots of clustering fair hair, this appearance appealing at sight to all my sympathies, this frank aspect, the artless smile, the youthful seriousness. He was of the right sort. He was one of us. He talked soberly, with a sort of composed unreserve, and with a quiet bearing that might have been the outcome of manly self-control, of impudence, of callousness, of a colossal unconsciousness, of a gigantic deception. Who can tell? From our tone we might have been discussing a third person, a football match, last year's weather. My mind floated in a sea of conjectures till the turn of the conversation enabled me, without being offensive, to remark that, upon the whole, this inquiry must have been pretty trying to him. He darted his arm across the tablecloth, and, clutching my hand by the side of my plate, glared fixedly. I was startled. "'It must be awfully hard,' I stammered, confused by this display of speechless feeling. "'It is hell!' he burst out in a muffled voice. This movement and these words caused two well-groomed male globe-trotters at a neighboring table to look up in alarm from their iced pudding. I rose, and we passed into the front gallery for coffee and cigars. On little octagon tables, candles burned in glass globes. Clumps of stiff-leaved plants separated sets of cozy wicker chairs. And between the pairs of columns, whose reddish shafts caught in a long row the sheen from the tall windows, the night, glittering and somber, seemed to hang like a splendid drapery. The riding lights of ships winked afar like setting stars, and the hills across the roadstead resembled rounded black masses of arrested thunderclouds. "'I couldn't clear out,' Jim began. "'The skipper did. That's all very well for him. I couldn't, and I wouldn't. They all got out of it in one way or another, but it wouldn't do for me.' I listened with concentrated attention, not daring to stir in my chair. I wanted to know, and to this day I don't know. I can only guess. He would be confident and depressed all in the same breath, as if some conviction of innate blamelessness had checked the truth writhing within him at every turn. He began by saying, in the tone in which a man would admit his inability to jump a twenty-foot wall, that he could never go home now. And this declaration recalled to my mind what Briarly had said. 
that the old parson in Essex seemed to fancy his sailor son not a little. I can't tell you whether Jim knew he was especially fancied, but the tone of his references to my dad was calculated to give me a notion that the good old rural dean was about the finest man that ever had been worried by the cares of a large family since the beginning of the world. This, though, was never stated, was implied with an anxiety that there should be no mistake about it, which was really very true and charming, but added a poignant sense of lives far off to the other elements of the story. He has seen it all in the home papers by this time, said Jim. I can never face the poor old chap. I did not dare to lift my eyes at this till I heard him add, I could never explain. He wouldn't understand. Then I looked up. He was smoking reflectively, and after a moment, rousing himself, began to talk again. He discovered at once a desire that I should not confound him with his partners in, in crime, let's call it. He was not one of them. He was altogether of another sort. I gave no sign of dissent. I had no intention, for the sake of barren truth, to rob him of the smallest particle of any saving grace that would come in his way. I didn't know how much of it he believed himself. I didn't know what he was playing up to, if he was playing up to anything at all, and I suspect he did not know either. For it is my belief no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. I made no sound all the time he was wondering what he had better do after that stupid inquiry was over. Apparently, he shared Briarly's contemptuous opinion of the proceedings ordained by law. He would not know where to turn, he confessed, clearly thinking aloud rather than talking to me. Certificate gone, career broken, no money to get away, no work that he could obtain as far as he could see. At home he could perhaps get something, but it meant going to his people for help, and that he would not do. He saw nothing for it but ship before the mast. Could get perhaps a quartermaster's billet and some steamer. Would do for a quartermaster. Do you think you would? I asked pitilessly. He jumped up and, going to the stone balustrade, looked out into the night. In a moment he was back, towering above my chair with his youthful face clouded yet by the pain of a conquered emotion. He had understood very well I did not doubt his ability to steer a ship. In a voice that quavered a bit, he asked me, why did I say that? I had been no end kind to him. I had not even laughed at him when, here he began to mumble, that mistake, you know, made a confounded ass of myself. I broke in by saying rather warmly that, for me, such a mistake was not a matter to laugh at. He sat down and drank deliberately some coffee, emptying the small cup to the last drop. That does not mean I admit for a moment the cap fitted, he declared distinctly. No, I said. No, he affirmed with quiet decision. Do you know what you would have done, do you? And you don't think yourself... He gulped something. You don't think yourself a... a cur? And with this, upon my honor, he looked at me inquisitively. It was a question, it appears, a bona fide question. However, he didn't wait for an answer. Before I could recover, he went on, with his eyes straight before him, as if reading off something written on the body of the night. It is all in being ready. I wasn't. Not... not then. I don't want to excuse myself, but I would like to explain. I would like somebody to understand. Somebody. One person, at least. You. Why not you? It was solemn and a little ridiculous, too, as they always are, those struggles of an individual trying to save from the fire his idea of what his moral identity should be, this precious notion of a convention, only one of the rules of the game, nothing more, but all the same so terribly effective by its assumption of unlimited power over natural instincts, by the awful penalties of its failure. He began his story quietly enough. 
On board that Dale Line steamer, he had picked up these four floating in a boat upon the discreet sunset glow of the sea. They had been after the first day looked askance upon. The fat skipper told the same story. The others had been silent, and at first it had been accepted. You don't cross-examine poor castaways you had the good luck to save, if not from cruel death, then at least from cruel suffering. Afterwards, with time to think it over, it might have struck the officers of the Avondale that there was something fishy in the affair, but of course they would keep their doubts to themselves. They had picked up the captain, the mate, and two engineers of the steamer Patna sunk at sea, and that, very properly, was enough for them. I did not ask Jim about the nature of his feelings during the ten days he spent on board. From the way he narrated that part, I was at liberty to infer he was partly stunned by the discovery he had made, the discovery about himself, and no doubt was at work trying to explain it away to the only man who was capable of appreciating all its tremendous magnitude. You must understand he did not try to minimize its importance, of that I am sure, and therein lies his distinction. As to what sensations he experienced when he got ashore and heard the unforeseen conclusion of the tale in which he had taken such a pitiful part, he told me nothing of them, and it is difficult to imagine. I wonder whether he felt the ground cut from under his feet? I wonder, but no doubt he managed to get a fresh foothold very soon. He was ashore a whole fortnight waiting in the sailor's home, and as there were six or seven men staying there at the time, I had heard of him a little. Their languid opinion seemed to be that, in addition to his other shortcomings, he was a sulky brute. He had passed these days on the veranda, buried in a long chair, and coming out of his place of sepulture only at meal times or late at night, and he wandered on the quays all by himself, detached from his surroundings, irresolute and silent, like a ghost without a home to haunt. "'I don't think I've spoken three words to a living soul in all that time,' he said, making me very sorry for him. And directly he added, "'One of these fellows would have been sure to blurt out something I had made up my mind not to put up with, and I didn't want to row. No, not then. I was too—too—I had no heart for it.' "'Is that bulkhead held out after all?' I remarked cheerfully. Yes, he murmured, it held. And yet, I swear to you, if I felt it budge under my hand. It's extraordinary what strains old iron will stand sometimes, I said. Thrown back in his seat, his legs stiffly out and his arms hanging down, he nodded slightly several times. You could not conceive a sadder spectacle. Suddenly he lifted his head. He sat up. He slapped his thigh. Ah, what a chance missed! My God, what a chance missed! He blazed out but the ring of the last mist resembled a cry wrung out by pain. He was silent again, with a still, faraway look of fierce yearning after that mist distinction, with his nostrils for an instant dilated, sniffing the intoxicating breath of that wasted opportunity. If you think I was either surprised or shocked, you do me an injustice in more ways than one. Ah, uh, he was an imaginative beggar. He would give himself away. He would give himself up. I could see in his glance darted into the night all his inner being carried on, projected headlong into the fanciful realm of recklessly heroic aspirations. He had no leisure to regret what he had lost. He was so wholly and naturally concerned for what he had failed to obtain. He was very far away from me, who watched him across three feet of space. With every instant he was penetrating deeper into the impossible world of romantic achievements. He got to the heart of it at last. A strange look of beatitude overspread his features. His eyes sparkled in the light of the candle burning between us. He positively smiled. He had penetrated to the very heart, to the very heart. It was an ecstatic smile that your faces, or mine either, will never wear, my dear boys. I whisked him back by saying, If you had stuck to the ship, you mean. He turned upon me, his eyes suddenly amazed and full of pain, with a bewildered, startled, suffering face, 
as though he had tumbled down from a star. Neither you nor I will ever look like this on any man. He shuddered profoundly, as if a cold fingertip had touched his heart. Last of all, he sighed. I was not in a merciful mood. He provoked one by his contradictory indiscretions. It is unfortunate you didn't know beforehand, I said with every unkind intention. But the perfidious shaft fell harmless, dropped at his feet like a spent arrow, as it were, and he did not think of picking it up. Perhaps he had not even seen it. Presently, lolling at ease, he said, Dash it all, I tell you it bulged. I was holding up my lamp along the angle iron in the lower deck when a flake of rust as big as the palm of my hand fell off the plate, all of itself. He passed his hand over his forehead. The thing stirred and jumped off like something alive while I was looking at it. That made you feel pretty bad, I observed casually. Do you suppose, he said, that I was thinking of myself with a hundred and sixty people at my back, all fast asleep in that four-tween deck alone, and more of them aft, more on the deck, sleeping, knowing nothing about it, three times as many as there were boats for, even if there had been time? I expected to see the iron open out as I stood there, and the rush of water going over them as they lay. What could I do? What? I can easily picture him to myself in the peopled gloom of the cavernous place, with the light of the globe lamp falling on a small portion of the bulkhead that had the weight of the ocean on the other side, and the breathing of unconscious sleepers in his ears. I can see him glaring at the iron, startled by the falling rust, overburdened by the knowledge of an imminent death. This, I gathered, was the second time he had been sent forward by that skipper of his, who, I rather think, wanted to keep him away from the bridge. He told me that his first impulse was to shout and straightaway make all these people leap out of sleep into terror, but such an overwhelming sense of his helplessness came over him that he was not able to produce a sound. This is, I suppose, what people mean by the tongue cleaving to the roof of the mouth. Too dry was the concise expression he used in reference to this state. Without a sound, then, he scrambled out on deck through the number one hatch. A windsail rigged down there swung against him accidentally, and he remembered that the light touch of the canvas on his face nearly knocked him off the hatchway ladder. He confessed that his knees wobbled a good deal as he stood on the foredeck looking at another sleeping crowd. The engines having been stopped by that time, the steam was blowing off. Its deep rumble made the whole night vibrate like a bass string. The ship trembled to it. He saw here and there a head lifted off a mat, a vague form uprise in sitting posture, listen sleepily for a moment, sink down again into the billowy confusion of boxes, steam winches, ventilators. He was aware all these people did not know enough to take intelligent notice of that strange noise. The ship of iron, the men with white faces, all the sights, all the sounds, everything on board to that ignorant and pious multitude was strange alike, and as trustworthy as it would forever remain incomprehensible. It occurred to him that the fact was fortunate, the idea of it was simply terrible. You must remember he believed, as any other man would have done in his place, that the ship would go down at any moment. The bulging, rust-eaten plates that kept back the ocean fatally must give way, all at once, like an undermined dam, and let in a sudden and overwhelming flood. He stood still, looking at these recumbent bodies, a doomed man aware of his fate, surveying the silent company of the dead. They were dead, nothing could save them. There were boats enough for half of them, perhaps, but there was no time. No time. No time. It did not seem worthwhile to open his lips, to stir hand or foot. Before he could shout three words or make three steps, he would be floundering in a sea whitened awfully by the desperate struggles of human beings, clamorous with the distress of cries for help. There was no help. He imagined what would happen perfectly. He went through it all motionless by the hatchway with the lamp in his hand. 
He went through it to the very last harrowing detail. I think he went through it again while he was telling me these things he could not tell the court. I saw as clearly as I see you now that there was nothing I could do. It seemed to take all life out of my limbs. I thought I might just as well stand where I was and wait. I did not think I had many seconds. Suddenly the steam ceased blowing off. The noise, he remarked, had been distracting, but the silence at once became intolerably oppressive. I thought I would choke before I got drowned, he said. He protested he did not think of saving himself. The only distinct thought formed, vanishing and reforming in his brain was 800 people and seven boats. 800 people and seven boats. Somebody was speaking aloud inside my head, he said a little wildly. 800 people and seven boats and no time. Just think of it. He leaned towards me across the little table and I tried to avoid his stare. Do you think I was afraid of death? he asked in a voice very fierce and low. He brought down his open hand with a bang that made the coffee cups dance. I'm ready to swear I was not. I was not. By God, no. He hitched himself upright and crossed his arms. His chin fell on his breast. The soft clashes of crockery reached us faintly through the high windows. There was a burst of voices, and several men came out in high good humor into the gallery. They were exchanging jocular reminiscences of the donkeys in Cairo. A pale, anxious youth stepping softly on long legs was being chaffed by a strutting and rubicund globetrotter about his purchases in the bazaar. "'No, really, do you think I've been done to that extent?' he inquired, very earnest and deliberate. The band moved away, dropping into chairs as they went, matches flared, illuminating for a second, faces without the ghost of an expression and the flat gaze of white shirt fronts, the hum of many conversations animated with the ardor of feasting sounded to me absurd and infinitely remote. Some of the crew were sleeping on the number one hatch within reach of my arm, began Jim again. You must know they kept Kalashi watch in that ship, all hands sleeping through the night and only the reliefs of quartermasters and lookout men being called. He was tempted to grip and shake the shoulder of the nearest Lasker, but he didn't. Something held his arms down along his sides. He was not afraid. Oh no, only he just couldn't, that's all. He was not afraid of death, perhaps, but I'll tell you what, he was afraid of the emergency. His confounded imagination had evoked for him all the horrors of panic, the trampling rush, the pitiful screams, boat swamped, all the appalling incidents of a disaster at sea he had ever heard of. He might have been resigned to die, but I suspect he wanted to die without added terrors, quietly, in a sort of peaceful trance. A certain readiness to perish is not so very rare, but it is seldom that you meet men whose souls, steeled in the impenetrable armor of resolution, are ready to fight a losing battle to the last. The desire of peace waxes stronger as hope declines, till at last it conquers the very desire of life. Which of us here has not observed this, or maybe experienced something of that feeling in his own person? The extreme weariness of emotions, the vanity of effort, the yearning for rest— those striving with unreasonable forces know it well. The shipwrecked castaways in boats, wanderers lost in a desert, men battling against the unthinking might of nature, or the stupid brutality of crowds. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.